podcast episode. I'm pleased to have Christo Ganos as a neurologist, a specialist from Charity University Medicine, Berlin. He is an expert in tick disorders. Thank you for coming today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So one of the things that I think is relevant for the audience is what is the approach that you use when evaluating a patient with a tick disorder? Thank you. Of course, it is difficult to try to sum everything up in a little time, but Essentially, ticks, you will always need a definition, and we know that they're movements or sounds that resemble voluntary actions, but appear inopportune. So they are surprising, so to say, to the eyes of the individual who observes. They are not surprising for the individual who experiences those, though. And that's important. So if we ask people with primary ticks, like Tourette's syndrome, why does this happen to you? Do you experience it? Sometimes they say, yeah, actually I do them because I experience this premonitory urge, and Sometimes they say, oh, I, I don't feel much, but I see that I'm blinking or I see that I'm doing this kind of movement, for example. So this is an important factor. People have a certain awareness of what is happening to their body. And even if this awareness has been so incorporated through the years that they just accept them, when we speak to them about the certain movements, they then become aware that they do them and they say, yes, it's part of my behavior because that and that and that. So this essentially distinguishes ticks from all other hyperkinesias that we know. So this is a basic approach. But this is just on the movement phenomenology, and later on we'll speak about the difficulties in distinguishing primary ticks from functional ticks. But of course, when we do evaluate the person with tick disorders, we should always keep in mind the neuropsychiatric comorbidities, which in many cases are the leading issue in people's quality of life, and sometimes it goes disregarded in the clinical setting. So we always have to explore about the presence of obsessive-compulsive behavior or disorder, attention deficit disorder, and then for the older individuals, of course, depression, anxiety disorders, sleep disorders, and often also sexual health disorders as well. Is there anything new in terms of how we understand the pathophysiology of ticks? Yes, there are new developments, and most of them have been led with probably most people know Mike Fox and, and this type of analysis of network mapping. So now we have good studies, some led by Kara Johnson, uh, one we did together with Andreas Horn, Mike Fox, and a series of really nice collaborators. And now we know the central network that is associated with the presence of primary ticks. I will not go into much into detail of the studies, but what we know, the key components of this network are essentially the basal ganglia, input and output structures, thalamus, and then interestingly, we also have the anterior cingulate cortex, parts of the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula as a center of interoceptive awareness, probably mediating this tick execution or tick emergence in a sense. So this is important because now that we have for the first time a mapped network or a network that we map on, then this informs us also for invasive or in the future perhaps non-invasive neuromodulation treatments because we can target this network more accurately and this we showed already in our study for example and other people have showed as well. So this is important. When we speak now, because I made this leap to DBS, when we speak about DBS we have to be very careful which patients we select and led by David Martino there's this nice international consensus paper essentially on which patients are deemed refractory in medical and pharmacological and behavioral treatments and should be considered for DBS. And in this context, we should always distinguish or make sure that the patients we send for DBS do not present predominantly with tics or other movements that are of functional nature. Yeah. And Christus, is there any data that we can use in terms of how soon 
DBS for Tourette syndrome, what this recalcitrant cases are. Is it, it any suggestions that say, instead of just waiting many years to see how the disease behaves, doing early DBS? Yeah, this is a nice question. And we have the advantage that Tourette syndrome is not a neurodegenerative disorder, right? So it's a neurodevelopmental syndrome. So either ways, we have a development of the syndrome over many years. And in adults, in this paper by David Martino, we established a list of things that have to happen before somebody considers DBS. And these are behavioral treatments and these are pharmacological agents that need to be tried for several weeks. This was part of a consensus, but I would say that one needs to try pharmacological agents, at least three, for example, from the class of dopamine blocking agents for at least eight to 12 weeks. And this was a contentious issue, but at least for this period. And then one can try also other medications or augment dopamine blocking agents with topiramate, for example, and one can also resolve to cannabinoids. This is another mm -hmm. issue to discuss, but there should be a rigid protocol of how to approach this, which behavioral and pharmacological strategies have been tried. And when they fail, and when we are still convinced that the main issue is ticks and not other comorbidities or other diagnosis, then we can discuss with the patient that now it would be the time to think of DBS. Are there any clinical trials in the near future for new treatments for Tourette syndrome or all related tick disorders? So we have some nice news from the behavioral front. So there are some nice studies published that online behavioral treatments work as well. Both exposure response prevention, this is a strategy essentially when you train the individuals to stop mm -hmm. or to, to increase the inhibitory capacity for ticks. So we have these behavioral studies. We know in a way that CBIT, the comprehensive behavioral intervention for ticks, works as well. And this can also be done in an online setting. And now we have this news on pharmacology about a copypam, a D1 receptor blocker. And essentially, new, this was a Gilbert study back from 2014, and since then, several studies. And now we have a phase 2B trial that has been concluded in children or adolescents that saw the efficacy for a copy pump. It's still unclear how significant this efficacy is for the overall quality of life of people, but there is a signal to noise there, and this will be explored further, I think. Interesting. And with the recent pandemic with COVID-19, I remember seeing that it increased the number of patients being diagnosed with tick disorders. It seems to be a different thing. But what is your view of these cases with emerging tick disorders and what we can learn from them? So for our listeners, the issue of functional ticks is not a new one. This has always been a difficult issue since the inception of the concept of ticks as a disorder back in the 19th century, essentially. So there were two fronts that ticks are functional or ticks are a primary disorder, neurological disorder. And this has continued over time. In the 80s, 90s, where we started with primary tick disorders, the re-evaluation and reappraisal of what Tourette's is essentially, then the focus was given on primary disorders. But then there were always patients that would appear like Tourette's, mm -hmm. but they had a functional disorder essentially. And now we see that clearly. What you refer to is an increase in cases that has been seen in clinics all over the world with people presenting with acute onset functional tics. Some people refer to tic-like behaviors, but indeed there has been an increase in these cases. And many of these cases have been using social media like TikTok, like YouTube, but we have written commentaries on that and many people have. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation that if you see a video of a certain motor phenomenon, you will catch it. It's not like that and people use to my understanding, not correctly, the word ecophenomenon. This is not an ecophenomenon in the, in the proper sense. But indeed, exposure and increased knowledge to Tourette syndrome and tics 
has led also to an increased prevalence of people with functional tics. And this is what we observe, and this is, I think, the most careful scientific comment to make at this time. What is interesting and what people are discussing is that the profile of comorbidities of these people with acute onset functional tics differs from the people with uh, primary tics, and it might allude to more to increased anxiety, increased depression, and other issues, but not so much the ADHD profile or the OCD profile that we see classically in people with Tourette's. And there are also some factors related to personality issues, but I think this is a careful topic that one needs to approach very cautiously. Yes. What do you think are the gaps in knowledge in terms of tics? And what are the future areas of research for this? This is a beautiful question, and let's, let's celebrate a gap that has been closed now. So we now speak so much about TikTok tics and this phenomenon, but I think we don't have such a brief memory to have forgotten like pandas and tics associated with sulfococcal infections. And there are these wonderful studies done from a consortium of colleagues that looked whether streptococcal infections, group A streptococcal infections, are associated with exacerbation of tics in people with primary tics and new onset tics in people who did not have tics before, and there is no data to support this. So I think, first of all, one knowledge gap that was still entering many people's thinking, like this pandas issue, has been now closed. So we have no evidence to support antibiotics in people which have new onset tics or tic exacerbations. This is one. For me, the most troubling issue is the issue of terminology. Perhaps the most important issue is the issue of definition. And we did start this conversation by defining what tics are, but actually this is a difficult issue because this definition is very broad and it allows people to subsume different phenomena under the tic rubric, but these phenomena of repetitive behaviors do not all actually pinpoint what we see in people with primary tic disorders and therefore we have the problem to say is this a repetitive behavior? Is it a tick? Is it a tick-like behavior? What is it when somebody, for example, hits somebody else and says, I, I cannot control it? Is it a tick? Is it tick-like? Is it allo-aggression? Is it something that's just a behavioral phenomenon? And I think the main issue now for us is to better define what a tick is so we can characterize our populations and do essentially better trials with these populations that will also lead to better results, more signal than noise, essentially. And in order to achieve this, I would like to celebrate the fact and thank the Movement Disorder Society for allowing us to begin a new task force on tick disorders, whose mandate is essentially, ideally within one year's time, we'll see if this is feasible, to provide a new consensus definitions of ticks and also split phenomenology from etiology. So we don't have to speak of a tick, of a tick-like behavior, of a non-tick behavior that looks like a tick, all of these complicated issues, but essentially we can define better what a tick is, separate it from etiology, so then we speak of functional tics, and then if people would like to use the term of tick-like behavior, we would try to also find a definition for that. So essentially we achieve a global consensus on the phenomena we see. That's very important, and it's really important because last year, also through the Movement Disorder Society, the Tick Disorders and Tourette's Tom Study Group, we did this study that we, the survey among movement disorders experts who see people with tics, and essentially we saw that it is really important to achieve a consensus and the majority of people reported that their knowledge on pathophysiology and phenomenology of tics is insufficient and I think this is a domain that with the help of the Movement Disorder Society we can increase knowledge and education about. Another issue that we'll see will be the rise of the cases that receive non-invasive neurostimulation, this is in the near future, and indeed hopefully with the data that we have provided and are published on literature we'll see also better applicability and better efficacy of the 
applied deep brain stimulation strategies in people with tics, this augmented with pharmacology, this augmented with concepts at clinics that do not focus only on the motor phenomena, but we have interdisciplinary clinics where we have movement disorder experts, yeah. psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. It's very important to be in discussion with all these uh, colleagues of ours mm -hmm. in order to provide our patients who do not have only a motor phenotype, but also a behavioral phenotype and many issues to deal with all the support they need. I think this is really important. I will use Mike Okun's beautiful sentence that the patient is the sun. And this is a guiding light also for us because we should put the patient in the center and all of us are trying to, from our different disciplines and capacities and, and our talent to speak with each other, the goal should be to, to help the patient uh, at the best. Thank you, Crystal, for your wonderful overview and keeping us abreast with Tourette syndrome, tics, and letting us know there is room for improvement. And I will invite all old listeners to check Crystal's Gatter's research. And thank you, Crystal, again for coming. And many other people, please, many other people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Good, yeah. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.